to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair event here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Valari from the Restart Project, and today we're inevitably talking about the pandemic during our first ever show produced under a lockdown. We'll be hearing from medical professionals Dr. Tarek Lubani and medical student Raiden Garapik, currently working in London, Ontario, in Canada, on 3D printing of face shields and advocating for the need to a shift to reusable personal protective equipment as a way to end the cycle of disposable products and the unacceptable shortages of PPE experienced by doctors and nurses globally. But first, we have a public service announcement to make in these troubled times. The virus is everywhere, and it doesn't manifest itself just with the obvious symptoms of fever and coughing. Many of us are asymptomatic, or at least do not present the most worrying signs. Anecdotally, quite a few of us at Restart have experienced extreme fatigue over the last few days, preventing, for example, my co-host Janet from joining us for today's episode. Personally, I'm one of apparently many people who didn't show any obvious symptoms, but completely lost my sense of smell for weeks. So take care of yourself and of everyone else around you, and hopefully this episode will be of interest to all of you. Now to our guests. We had Tarek Lubani on Restart Radio a couple of years ago to talk about his work on 3D printing of medical equipment in Gaza. Today we're discussing something relevant for everyone, including in the north of the world. So thank you to Dr. Tarek Lubani and Raiden Garapik uh, for joining us today uh, for this episode of Restart Radio. Please tell us how you started working on this project to provide uh, 3D printed face shields. Well, uh, Ugo, as you know, I work also in the Gaza Strip. And so I had very much an outsider's view where I was in the Gaza Strip, uh, which at that time didn't have any COVID cases as things were starting to escalate in Europe. And then of course, uh, in, in North America. And when I came back, I, I must admit, I wasn't 100% sure what to think because I didn't have time to think much about it. And when we reached, I think I, like many other people, had expected that there was going to be some response, that the cavalry was coming, that everything would be okay. And then when I showed up to work in the hospital, I realized it wasn't and it wouldn't be without us. And that's when uh, that's when really the GLIA team activated and started working, looking for not just what it was that was needed, but what it was that was needed that we could do. And of course, we'd been preparing for this moment for our whole lives as an organization. And GLIA was just very, very well matched for it. We identified kind of these major pillars that, uh, that there were deficits in. And one of the main ones was personal protective equipment. And so that's why we pursued that one initially with the face shield. And so the the need initially didn't seem obvious to most people, evidently, as 
it, it still seems quite incredible that uh, in countries that are wealthy and where generally everything can be found at any time, there hasn't been enough preparation for protective equipment uh, such as such as face shields. And I just wonder, um, how do you think this happened? I don't think the problem is a lack of things because the West especially is very rich in things. The problem, and I think you can really relate to this, Ugo, it's a lack of reusable things. It's a wealth of disposable things. We, even today, even today, we don't lack N95 masks. We lack disposable N95 masks. You could probably put an N95 mask on every, uh, every single healthcare worker in the province, if not in the country, just based on the supplies that already exist. But transitioning people from the idea that these masks should be uh, reusable instead of disposable, it, it evokes in them a interesting response where it seems as though they don't even know what to do. They're like, well, I don't want to wear somebody else's mask. Well, I don't want to have to rewash my mask. The culture that was so pervasive, even as, as few as 15 years ago, is no longer really there. For example, my hospital last week went through 80,000 gowns, 80,000 wow. gowns. Uh, Gaza will never have a problem of running out of gowns because they don't use disposable gowns. But London, Canada will because they use disposable gowns. So I, I really don't think that the problem here is the lack of stuff. It's two things. And again, you you know, you're the perfect person to tell this to. I hardly need to explain it to you to you or your audience. Yeah. The two things are just the abundance of disposable things and the lack of that culture that says that yes, you can reuse. Yes, you can extend. Yes, you can make this last longer. This is such a, an interesting point. Um, you know, we've been chronicling the fight for the right to repair globally and uh seeing how there is a culture, obviously, of accepting more and more, or choosing even, disposable, easy solutions rather than taking the time to understand the importance of reusability, repairability, when that applies. In, in this case, I never thought that we would have to make a, a parallel with the medical world at this level. And uh, I wonder, you know, some people talk about the extra cultural barrier linked to hygiene that they probably associate with disposable versus reusable. And I think you have very valid points to actually respond to that. The, the idea of hygiene here is a bit of a red herring. This is right. just a virus. Yes, it's a dangerous virus. Yes, it's problematic. But it's not like it's some kind of super alien come from outer space. It behaves like every other virus in most senses. Uh, so, for example, water and soap will get rid of almost all of the virus. A little bit of bleach and water will get rid of almost all the virus. Hydrogen phase, hydrogen peroxide will get rid of all of the virus. So we're really talking about a... It's not necessarily a reality that's based on this hygiene, but this idea, this hermetic seal where I, I think all of us 
as children probably received a gift that was a little banged up or that was a hand-me-down and we loved it uh, so deeply and so profoundly because at that point we hadn't yet been indoctrinated that every nick, every scratch, every moment of use is damage. And that's kind of what's happening now. So even when we've started trying to convince people about reusability of, of things that are were never really uh, supposed to be disposable but have become so, you get that ick factor coming. It's like the culture comes. There's no doubt there have been lots of studies on the hygiene of reusing things like masks. Of course, we're not talking about you know, throwing it on the ground and picking it up and using it. No, that's not what reuse means. Reuse means putting it through a careful decontamination process, checking it, and then returning it into use. And still, despite people seeing the evidence, they say things like, well, I just don't want to. I, it's not good for me. And that culture, unfortunately, is a big contributor to what's happening. I mean, yesterday I worked. I used five or six gowns. Because you go into a patient, you see them, and then you have to change gowns. And each of them was, it was impossible to reuse it, even if I wished to reuse it. They were thin paper, and they tore the moment you tried to take them off. So um, I think we've kind of been trained in a way that's not even really practicable in real life, that hygiene means a certain thing. And what that's meant is that we've sacrificed our own health. People have died and people will die because of the use of disposables. It's so profound and it's so concrete right now. And despite that, these same people who are using the, still like waiting for the ship of disposables to show up, um, have a really hard time changing over to reusables. Right. So your strategy has been, you know, with the idea of pushing for a change in the way we perceive the importance of reusable versus disposable. But your strategy started with uh, coming up with a solution, a 3D printable solution in light of your previous work uh, with GLIA uh, worldwide. And this is the first time that you targeted Canada. And um, I just wonder if, uh, Radon, you could tell us a bit more about the face shield that you've come up with and how it works and what kind of response you got from people in Ontario and beyond. Yeah, so one of the first important things to recognize about the face shield is that it's not actually a respirator what we've developed. So a respirator or what some people might know as the N95 mask is something that covers the nose and the mouth and actually stops particles from entering those areas. Whereas a shield is a thing that actually covers the entire face. So it covers the eyes. It's kind of a sheet of plastic in front of the face. And that's what we've developed. So the face shield that we've developed is not a respirator, but it's just as important in protecting the face of the healthcare providers using it. So basically the design that we created in conjunction with different engineers and all the amazing people throughout the GLIA team is we 3D print the band that goes around the head, kind of the plastic portion holding the shield. And then we use a mylar sheet to cover the face and an elastic band to hold it against the head. 
the reaction to this that we've seen so far, and I think Tarek can speak to that being in the hospitals more and interacting with a lot of the physicians has been very positive so far. Um, it's obviously reusable. It can be sanitized pretty efficiently. And we worked very closely in conjunctions with physicians and healthcare providers that were using it to ensure that their needs were met and they felt safe and protected in using it. So perhaps Tara can talk a little more to the feedback he received. The face shields really, I think, have answered a couple of needs. One of them is that right now there are still some face shields in our emergency department, but people can very clearly see that given the trajectory we're on, they're going to run out. And I think people also are starting to get that sense, at least to some extent, that here's a permanent solution to the problem. And so they really, at least the people who started using the reusable face shields, they really do look at it as a way to never have to think about face shields again, rather than having to worry, is there supplies or stock? Uh, what's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen the day after tomorrow? Um, in that sense, the face shields as compared to the respirators, the things to breathe in, people have really adopted them well. And it was a really good way to enter that culture of reusability for people. Of course, we found a lot of pushback from hospital administrators, which is interesting because some hospitals where the administrators were pushing back have totally run out of face shields. And they would say to us, well, people shouldn't wear them. We said, but you're out of face shields. And they say, well, we haven't approved those. And they're on their own planet and we're on ours. And in fact, it seems that the regulatory piece, uh, again, Ugo, having followed your, your work and the Restart Projects work so closely, it seems like you guys struggle with this too. But the, So there's so many parallels. The regulatory piece really is one of the pieces that is having uh, problems because we have to get the approval of people who never imagined that the supply lines would cut. You are listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. Today with Dr. Tarek Lubani and Raiden Garapik about their work in London, Ontario, 3D printing personal protective equipment and challenging the culture of disposability in the medical world. Right, uh, this again links uh, these themes so, so closely. In fact, uh, we had a series of conversations with professionals in the UK, medical professionals in the last week. And one of the things that came out is the issue of repair and maintenance of equipment that might be critical in the case of an emergency, whether it's COVID uh, or other. And, uh, you know, the, the threats that often manufacturers or service uh, contractors pose to uh, biomeds or medical professional, technical medical professional that could perform a repair, but actually that would no longer mean that the... Um, product is perceived as approved and, and 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 it does seem like we're talking about different layers different planets here and you've been following these issues for a long time advocating for right to repair um, 
of medical equipment, particularly in parts of the world where people just simply don't have access to authorized providers of such services. How, how do you see this evolving? I think there are some, we've crossed some bridges. And right now, it's obvious that the makers are um, very much in ascendancy. And right now, I think what we have to do, all the makers who are listening to this, all the people who are involved, uh, who are interested and have any kind of policymaking capability, we have to burn all the bridges we just crossed so that we don't go back. Because if we don't, tomorrow, they'll be back to disposable everything. They'll be back to not repairing anything. Nobody wants, nobody who's involved in the system is there accidentally. There's a lot of money to be made and a lot of people who really don't care about the things that you and I care about, things like the planet, things like the environment, things like um, people not being able, people being able to use their equipment and not having it go obsolete, which of course disproportionately affects poorer people who can't buy new things every once in a while. So I, I think we right now have an advantage. All of us geeks who are sitting there with our glasses coming down our noses while we try to solder while avoiding the fumes, we are the ones now who control what happens in this pandemic. And we should demand some things. And one of the things that really I think it's incumbent on us to demand is that this doesn't happen again. Because if we don't learn lessons, and if we don't force those around us who need us now to learn lessons, then I think what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for the next crisis, be it, be, be it a pandemic or an ecological crisis or financial crisis or whatever. Yes, and you know, there's some issues people seem to have come up with temporary fixes that seem a bit weak, like potentially reducing... Uh, patents or IP claims, but very short term on, on use of medical equipment or, you know, potentially provision of spare parts or other aspects of these ecosystems. And it, it, if we fear that some of this could be very short-sighted and short-term, and I like your point of actually burning some of the bridges so that we can build the world that we actually wanted in the first place and not just accommodate for a temporary allowance from manufacturers. Let's name one of these problems, the Open COVID Pledge by the very, very wonderful Creative Commons. The Open COVID Pledge is basically a patent relief pledge that says that you and your company of people who are essentially extortionists, essentially involved in a business in which you thrive off of keeping other people away from how to make or fix your products, that you will give people a little bit of a holiday for one year until after the pandemic is done. So one year after it's declared. Now, these same companies who are signing on to the Open COVID Pledge they were very much up against the wall because people were going to rip these patents from them. They were going to insist that 
obviously the patent system is broken and I think it became obvious to so many people. And things like the Open COVID Pledge, I think really did create an exit, like a fire escape for these companies whose backs were to the wall, who were going to be forced to make real or substantive changes or risk people violating their patents actively. There were lots of people talking about acts of civil disobedience and breaking patents openly um, so that they could, they could actually do something to save lives. And I think what, just like you said, it's short-sighted, but we should name how it's short-sighted. Yes, it's short-sighted, but it's short-sighted because it allows these people to make easy concessions instead of hard concessions. And it also satiates us because we don't demand the thing that we actually should be demanding. We know that the patent system is broken. I mean, that's why Glee exists. Glee exists because patent system is so broken that a 200-year-old stethoscope costs $300. Um, and, and that's why I think that it's incumbent upon all of us, especially those of us who really do carry weight right now, to, to insist on something a little bit more substantial than a one-year holiday from the system that brought us to our knees. Raydung, the work that you're doing uh, with Glia and with Tarek uh, demands like a, a future that doesn't exist yet, a world where we want some barriers to go, to change completely, to be removed, uh, whether it's about intellectual property, uh, whether it's about patents, our ability and our right to repair and reuse medical equipment, uh, not just in the context of this crisis, but more long-term. What is it that would fix this problem? So it is a big question, but one of the things that you can kind of focus on and look towards is the idea of a culture of free information and bringing it back to open source access to knowledge. So a big pillar of GLIA and what we aim to work with and kind of push towards is making sure that everything that we do and the individuals and organizations we collaborate with really prioritize and work with open source. So anything that we create is up there and out there for anyone to access to make adjustments to, to learn from, to play around with, and ultimately the goal is to improve. And that's something that's really prevented by these patent and these IP, this, these laws that we have today, that it, there's this amazing amount of knowledge out there that so many people are prevented from accessing due to legal barriers, patent barriers, whatever it may be. And GLIA, along with amazing other organizations out there, are working to stop that and to ensure that everyone has access to these devices, that everyone has the ability to learn from the knowledge that's already out there and then contribute their own. And this applies to the repairs to different technological devices. This applies to using things and developing better things. And uh, in the case of GLIA, it applies to medical resources. So like Tarek said, when there's a patent on a 300-year-old device, it makes it very hard for people who may be able to improve it, who may need it, to access it. 
Um, an example that kind of came out of COVID uh, recently has been with the face shields Glia has been developing. So many different designs are out there right now and we were prevented from accessing those. And we did work with the different companies. We asked about them making some adjustments so we could access them. But ultimately that didn't come to fruition in time and we had to develop our own design. So now you have incredibly talented individuals who have to start from scratch. And all this time and all this effort is going into that rather than it going towards taking something that's already been developed, that's already very good and functional and improving it and open source would allow that to happen. And I think that's something that moving forward, that is a big heavy change that will need to be addressed when we live in a society right now with the kind of barriers to knowledge that we have, is opening it up to everyone and providing that access is going to kind of be the first domino in a change of events that will have unlimited potential to change the world of technology and information today. One more question around uh... There's been a lot of hype um, with projects trying to come up with quickly open source new designs for ventilators around the world. And I know this is not an area that you took any role in, but what do you make of it uh, in a time of crisis? Is this something that you think uh, was a priority or should the world have simply gone for designs that are already in existence and easy to access, given that it takes time to come up with new equipment? The question of ventilators is an excellent one. Ventilators are critical by definition. If, for example, you had a 99% uptime on a ventilator, well, that's what, 14, if I'm doing my math right here, 14 minutes that somebody's not breathing? If you had 99.9%, well, that's 1.4 minutes that somebody's not breathing. I mean, these are still unacceptable numbers. And we don't need to solve this problem again. So right now, the open source ventilator work is a failure of our governments to correctly use their patent system. Patents were not designed to protect companies. They were designed to protect the public. And they've been hijacked. So what should have happened... What should have happened here was that the governments immediately released the patents on all ventilator technology to the public so that the public could take the technologies that already existed and extend and expand them. Instead, you have ventilators that look like they did in the 60s. And that's wrong. That shouldn't happen. I'm glad that people are doing work on ventilators. Do I think that they'll be ready before this pandemic is over? Probably not. They probably won't arrive to the same quality as the current commercial ventilators. But the open source won't die. And so let's say that 100% of people lose interest in them, which I doubt. Uh, well, the next time they won't be starting from zero like they did this time. And so I, I do have my doubts about these ventilator projects reaching the exact same quality and caliber as the proprietary systems, but I still think it's important to work on them because there's a lot of energy and creativity that's being spent right now, and it is moving things forward so long as the people who are doing the work are releasing it into the open source world under any of the licenses that meet the open source definition. Thank you. Um, meanwhile, we hear 
that some of the projects from private companies coming into the space trying to supercharge super quickly and manufacturing thousands of ventilators might actually be equally short-sighted uh, as coming up with fairly disposable, uh, non-repairable uh, projects themselves. So it seems like we're not learning on our previous mistakes. I sort of want to push back against that for a moment because most of the solutions that are coming up now are... Uh, commercial off-the-shelf modular solutions. They take things that already existed and they assemble them together in novel ways. And inherently, that system is going to be less proprietary and more prone to fixing. So, for example, I was looking at uh, Tesla's model. Almost everything in Tesla's model is from something else that used to be on Tesla's line last week. And I think that right now in rushing, what is happening is that people are using components that already exist, components that are generalizable, components that are easily findable. Uh, so I'm not sure that they're making them disposable in that sense. Like, I think we should probably recognize that most of what's being made now is in that sense uh, reconfigurable. Um, it might be low quality, sure. It might not be quality assured in the right way, sure. But at least let's give credit to the fact that almost all the models that are hitting now are modular. Okay, well, that's actually encouraging to hear. Thanks so much for uh, both of your time. And unless there's something else that you'd like to add uh, that you wish I had asked you. Yeah, I want to say something to the Restart community. This is our moment. This is what we've all been waiting for all this time, is a moment in which these skills that we've been honing and developing for years matter and literally save lives and also give us the credibility that we can push for the changes that we've wanted for all along. So I, I really do encourage the community to start demanding those changes and demand them in a way that cannot go back when this is over. Because if we go back, all we're doing is guaranteeing the exact same thing happen again. Brilliant. Tarek Lubani and Radian Garapik, thank you so much for joining us on Restart Radio today. And good luck and thanks from all of us and our audience for your really crucial work at this time. And thank you so much, Hugo. Yes, thank you. I hope everyone enjoyed our interview with Dr. Tarek Lubani and Raiden Garapik. During this pandemic, we are currently not running in-person restart parties, as you can imagine, anywhere in the world, and certainly not in London. However, if you'd like help fixing anything with a plug or a battery, including headphones, radios and all audio equipment, use the hashtag SOSRestart on social media. Just give us information on the make, model and the fault of your device and we will do our best to help. You can find more information at our website, therestartproject.org, or find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thanks to Optonoise and Cassini Sound for our music, which was made with lasers, spinning plastic discs and discard electronics. We are here, not quite, live, every second Tuesday of the month at 5pm. Until next time.